Each and every one of you are here today. Welcome, One Hope Church. Um, we're going to continue our study, the Gospel of Luke, this morning. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 4, and we'll be picking up at verse 16. Um, but before we get into that, you know, I, I just want to encourage this morning that Jesus is worthy uh, to be worshipped, and I pray that we would make much of him uh, today. You know, I, I have to admit, just, um, just thinking about... Um, you know, living in the South and college football and how much that dominates our fall, um, especially our fall weekends. And just thinking about how, you know, people coming from, you know, many miles, many hours away to travel to a game, you know, yesterday that they know is going to be in the rain and they're going to spend a lot of money to get there, to be there, to, you know, hotels or places to stay, um, and they're going to go out there and they're just going to scream their heads off, and, you know, if they're a Georgia fan, until we're getting destroyed. And then they're going to, you know, go home sad. Um, or if they came as an Alabama fan, they're going to scream their head off for a long time and be really happy. And not think anything about the sacrifice. I mean, understanding it's a sacrifice, knowing it's a sacrifice, but just in comparison to what they feel they're receiving, it's totally worth it. 100% worth it. And I was thinking about in the church how oftentimes, you know, what we say is Jesus is first. We say he's number one. We say he's the priority. But then little things can come before that in our, like in our practice. It's like, yes, there's that spiritual reality, that spiritual truth. But in our practice, so many times, so many other things get put as the higher priority than the things of Jesus and worshiping him. And and I was thinking about that, you know, not to, like, cast blame, like, who's to blame here? Uh, because I was like, you know, are we just, as individuals, you know, as people not committed enough to Jesus? Or is that we just don't make enough of Jesus? You know, because college football has done a really good job of making something of itself to where people want to give that sort of devotion to it. And is it that we make so little of Jesus that that appeal isn't there to where people are, want to make that sort of sacrifice and do so joyfully and cheerfully? Have we made Jesus, like, small? And so as we look at Luke chapter 4 this morning, I want us to see how awesome Jesus is and for that to be where our, our thoughts and our hearts and our focus you know, is directed. Because if we see him as he truly is, then I think more in our daily life and experience, he gets the first place. And then that rubs off onto other people who then will do the same. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. As we're in Luke chapter 4, and just a little bit of background. Remember, Jesus at this point um, has been baptized. Um, the Spirit comes upon him. You know, as a dove, when he's baptized, then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness immediately. He's there 40 days, um, you know, for being uh, without food and being tempted by the devil. We see that he uses um, the scripture to refute the devil. 
Um, we see even that the devil uses the scripture, as Michael pointed out to us last week. Um, and so we have to use the scripture, you know, properly. Because um, it can always be taken out of context. It can be taken and twisted uh, for its, you know, people to use at their own purposes. And even the enemy can use it. And so um, Jesus, you know, fully passed that test. And it says in verse 14 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so again, we see the Spirit um, now empowering, you know, Jesus. And we see the different, you know, he's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one, we have one God in three persons, and each of the persons of the Trinity have, you know, specific role and function. Um, it's the Father who sends. It's Jesus who is sent. Um, Christ who is sent, the Son of God. And then it's the Spirit um, who, imp- who directs and empowers. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll pick up in verse 16. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We thank you that you love us, God. Help us to love you more and more with our whole hearts, um, that nothing would take priority or the place of the affection that you so rightly deserve, that nothing in our life would receive more um, sacrifice and more commitment than you, dear God. That when we would understand that when you are rightfully um, in the first place, God, that everything else is in its proper place. And so help us to remember that and to live accordingly. Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you came in power. Um, And we just pray that we would know your power and your presence this morning by your Holy Spirit, dear Lord. In your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So let's, read, let's pick up in verse 16. It said, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He was going back to his hometown. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was found, handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is just an awesome portion of Scripture. Just love this so much. So Jesus, you know, goes back to his hometown. He goes to the, the synagogue, you know, the local place of worship. You know, the temple was in, you know, be in Jerusalem, but the, um, the synagogue would be, there would be a synagogue in each local place for the people to come together, you know, to worship um, and to learn and to read the Scripture Together, the Old Testament, what we could call the Old Testament scriptures. And so, you know, he's handed the book of Isaiah to read, the scrolls of Isaiah, and he finds in there Isaiah 61. Um, now, remember, understand they didn't have, like, you know, we have it very easy to look it up. Hey, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to read beginning in verse 1. Um, they didn't have it broken down like that. It's just, you know, the text is there, you know, and it's entirety, and it wasn't, you know, 
broken up to that easy finding. You really had to know it and know where it was and know what you were looking for. Um, so much more uh, difficult than it is today. But he takes it, he finds Isaiah 61, and he reads that portion of Scripture, and then he makes this claim that this Scripture is referring to himself. And so here we have you know, a, clear, um, a clear case where Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, that he is the one that they have been waiting for. And listen to what he says about it. Again, he begins, and he quotes from the beginning there, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And so he's referring back you know, to the baptism, referring back to being sent out into the you know, desert for his temptation and now being sent you know, in power um, to teach and to preach and to heal and to do these things. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. You know, and, and to do what? Here we have to preach the gospel to the poor. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. It's very simply, you know, the good news. To give good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And what I would contend with you this morning is that that refers to every person who has walked the face of the earth. Because we're talking about this in a spiritual context, not just in a physical context of, you know, earthly poverty, but in a spiritual context of spiritual poverty. You know, Scripture says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, Those who are, uh, you know, poor spiritually, you know, we we look at it this way, we're all bankrupt, apart from God, we're all bankrupt spiritually. We have nothing in our accounts and a very large debt and no way to pay it. We're all brokenhearted by, the, by sin and the fallenness of the world. Even you know, a hard-hearted person, when someone close to them you know, dies or go through a great affliction, you know, they're, they're brokenhearted about that. Even a, even a murderer will, be broken, will usually be brokenhearted about something in his life. We're all brokenhearted, broken by sin, the fact that we live in a, in a fallen world. Um, you know, we're, even this weekend, as we saw what happened in, you know, Oregon at the community college with the, you know, shooting that happened there, um, where a good number of people lost their lives. Um, the last I saw was about 10. And you look at that, and, you know, that should break us. You know, it, it should never be something that we're, we get used to. We should never get used to, even though it's so common, we should never get used to human tragedy, um, of, of things of that nature. And just a terrible, terrible thing. But in it, we see the brokenness of, of sin. We see that we live in a fallen world. Um, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Again, you know, every person in sin is a slave of sin. Every person without Christ is a slave to sin. And to be a slave means that one is not fully in control. There's something dominating that individual and causes them to act and and react a certain way. I mean, yes, the person still has choices to make, but the scripture is really clear about being in slavery and in bondage to sin and how, you know, that... 
sin is never satisfied, and it, if, it, if it's not dealt with, it keeps growing in a person's life and becomes a, a worse and worse master over them. Now notice this, and this is really, really interesting, where Jesus stops reading. Because he reads to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he stops. Now what is this year of the Lord? What's he referring to there? Um, In Leviticus chapter 25, we read about the year of Jubilee. And this was every 50 years in the nation of Israel, there was this, this testimony or this sign of God's grace. We're in the 50th year. Um, well, let, me, let me back up just a little bit here. As far as the division of the land went, you know, for the tribes of Israel, it was divided by tribe and then by, you know, families. And that land was intended to stay in the possession of, you know, individual families, um, you know, on and on throughout the generations. But we all know how people can make a mess of things, right? Um, can, you know, you, you have a... Uh, father or grandfather who got caught up in alcoholism and kind of, you know, squandered away um, his resources and, you know, ended up, you know, having to get rid of the land and, you know, things of that nature and how that can negatively affect people for generations to come. Well, here in this year of Jubilee, it wasn't supposed to work like that. You, would, you actually, the, the land was never supposed to even leave a family on any sort of permanent basis. It would, you could lease it out was the idea according to the number of years, until the next year of Jubilee. How much was that worth for the years left of you know, planting and harvesting crops? But in that 50th year, everything was supposed to revert back to the original family. So it's like, yes, people could, could kind of mess it up, but only there's a safety there. They could only mess it up so much, and then it wouldn't have an effect you know, on the future generations you know, to come. Unfortunately, Israel didn't really practice this year of Jubilee very faithfully, you know, at all. And so, you know, it didn't work out that in, uh, intended, you know, benefit. But it was still an example of God's grace that debts would be, you know, taken away. And it, there would be a, a new day. It would be a time of forgiveness and of redemption and of restoration. And a time of celebration in that year for the people. And they actually... They weren't supposed to, you know, harvest anything. Even, you know, the, the grapes on the vines that just grew without them, you know, attending to them, they weren't even supposed to really collect those. You would go out into the field and just, like, eat them off the vine or whatever. But they were just supposed to, you know, God was going to provide for them if they were faithful and give them a blessing so they wouldn't have to even work in that year. Imagine that. I mean, how, how do you like that for a holiday? It's like, this year you don't even have to work at all. God's just going to provide for you. But, you know, people have a hard time and always have had a hard time trusting God. And so they, that's why they didn't follow many times these instructions and, these, and didn't get the benefit of the promises because they were disobedient. But... Jesus is here saying he's proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. He's proclaiming this year of Jubilee. And, it's, and the, the cool thing is it's not set to, to a, a literal one-year period of time because at this point it's still going to be more than a year before Jesus goes to the cross. We don't even have you know, the crucifixion and resurrection in view yet. 
he's actually talking about ushering in this time of, of grace. And this, you know, it, it really has to do with the new covenant and this new time of, of grace for people to be made right with God. Because the next line after to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in Isaiah 61 is, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the reason he doesn't read that is because that's not why he came at this point in time in his first coming, his first advent here. This is for the time of grace, where he's going to be the perfect Lamb of God who's going to be slain for our sins. But there is going to be a time when the day of vengeance of our God is fulfilled, and that's at the second coming of Jesus, his second advent. And so that's why he put the brakes on and just stopped right there midstream in that verse and just said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he sat down. Because now wasn't the time for judgment. That was going to be future and still is future. But what he came for and what still is now is the acceptable year of the Lord, the time, the age of grace that we have in the new covenant and what we have in Christ available still today. But there's going to come a time where that time will come to a close. And when that time comes to a close, then you have the day of vengeance of our God. And who is going to be the executor of the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus Christ himself. The book of Revelation depicts him, you know, riding on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, it's a powerful and frankly a violent picture as Jesus executes vengeance on his enemies. And that's powerful, and we need to understand that. And we need to understand it so that we rightly view the time that we're in and understand that it's not going to last forever. That there comes a time where that time of grace is over. And that should inform us in terms of how we live here and now today. To give us instruction toward that. Now, let's go to verse 22. It says, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So, again, they all bore witness. They marveled. They're a little bit confused, though, because don't we know this guy? Isn't, you know, is he different than we thought he was? But everybody at this point, it seems like the, the audience is, is pretty, pretty happy, Right? I mean, that's kind of the tenor that you get. But it's not going to be for long. Because then Jesus says to them, he said to them, verse 23, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath 
in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So here, Jesus changes how he's speaking to them. His tone changes a bit with them. Because like, okay, you're happy now to hear the words, but are you willing to hear the whole message? And he speaks this thing against them because he understands who they are. He knows his audience really, really well. I mean, we have to understand that this is Jesus we're talking about, and he, he's able to discern people's hearts and thoughts and intentions. He has a better understanding of that than you know, we, we do when dealing with people. He's always right about where a person's heart is or where a group of people are and their understanding and thinking. And in their thinking, he knows that they're going to be pretty fickle and this is going to prove it out. He also knows that they are extremely nationalistic to the point that they are ignoring all the scriptures that refer to the Gentiles being under God's blessing and under God's grace and are solely focused on what you know, God's going to do for them as Israelites. And so Jesus uses these examples. He also knows the future. He knows that they, they truly will re- reject him in the future, that they won't have any issue with his going to the cross. And so he uses these two examples. The first one he uses is from 1 Kings chapter 17, where, you know, Elijah um, is in, you know, this conflict in Israel because uh, of a wicked king, uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and how uh, the majority of the nation had gone astray in the worshiping of, you know, of Baal, of, you know, a false god. Um, and Elijah is a true prophet of God. There were others as well. But in this time of judgment for Israel, there's three years and six months where there's a great famine where it doesn't rain. That's a long time to go without rain. Um, and there's this widow who is, you know, with her son getting to the point of being ready to eat, eat a last meal and, and die. I mean, that's how bad things have gotten. And Elijah comes to her and um, you know, basically tells her everything's going to be fine, just to trust um, and to make him a little bit of a cake first, and then that her, her jar of oil and her flour will not run out. And God is, we see his faithfulness um, to her, and there's a little homework, there's a little extra story on top of that that's really neat. So if you want to read 1 Kings 17 um, later on today, um, rainy day as you're sitting in your home, then uh, that's a, a great chapter to read. And so you see his faithfulness, but the key point there that is made is that she's a Gentile woman. And there were lots of other widows that Elijah could have been sent to, but he was sent to a Gentile woman. And Jesus drives that point home with them. And then he uses another example because there's he says there's one there are many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian who actually had raids against Israel 
who actually has a Jewish servant girl who we have picked up in one of these raids. 2 Kings 5, you want to read that as well today. Man, that's a good one to read. You want to see some faith and forgiveness and desiring God's best for someone who's even an oppressor? Notice that little servant girl in 2 Kings chapter 5 and her faith and her love. It is powerful, powerful. If that, That's one of those stories I'm like, man, if that story doesn't move you, I don't know. We're just not on the same page here because that story is, I mean, it is a moving picture. But what's the point there? This is a Syrian man, a Gentile that God reaches out to. And I think it's good for us to keep that in mind. I'd like to read just a few verses from Isaiah chapter 19, verses 19 through 25. Because in light of current events, we can have this mistaken understanding that some countries are in such disarray or that they're in such a state that there's no hope for them. You think about what's going on in Syria, you know, in this time and all the chaos that is there. And is there hope for Syria? And if you read the scripture, you, in this Isaiah chapter 19, you see, absolutely. It says in verse 19, And in that day there will be an altar in the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And he will send them a Savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. And in that day, here's the key part. And in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So we look at that and go, Yes, there is hope. Yes, there's a lot of trouble. But yes, even as you see it in the scriptures, but yes, there is hope. And we know that God does care you know, for these people. And we see again and again throughout the scriptures that, again, it, it, you know, it's, it's so wonderful. You know, there's so many, so many groups that they've got to go and change what was written. You know, sometimes we have to, we look back at groups that had called themselves Christians, and we see that what they practice or what they believe was contrary to the scripture and we, we can clearly say that was wrong but there's so many groups like you know the mormons for example that had to have a new revelation they had to have a new revelation in the 60s with the civil rights movement going on at that time that oh black people can make it to heaven too they had to have a new revelation to tell them that we don't have to have a new revelation to tell us anything like that we see it all throughout the scriptures even the you know promises Back to Abraham. We see it there. So we don't have to have any new revelations. Sometimes we have to say, you know those people that called themselves Christians? Well, if they even were, they were pretty sorry at it. Because they didn't follow the scripture on these things. 
And that's what we get to say in those situations. You know, and many of the times we would say they were just people who use religion as a tool. You know, you think about, you know, the, the Spanish conquistadors and they bring a, a priest with them. They'd land on a, you know, a new land and they'd, you know, have their cross and they'd, they'd say, you know, some, a few words. Nobody can even hear them. If they could hear them, they wouldn't understand the language. And they go, well, these people didn't accept it. Go and conquer. You know, that isn't our faith. That doesn't, have, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus or following Jesus. That's man's, you know, religion. That's man using religion as a tool to oppress and to conquer and to destroy. That's all that that is. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Because what do we see that Jesus came for? I tell you, you see what Jesus came for in, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And it's really great that we have that because then anyone doing something contrary to that that says they're a Christian or they're a follower of God or they're a follower of Jesus, you can go, well, that's not why Jesus came. And so your work is contrary to his. Therefore, I know you're not true to him. And you probably don't even know him. And... So we're not going to listen to that. It, it's, it gets very easy for us because we take the words of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and we evaluate what is said and what is done based on the, the word of God. And it's true and it's beautiful and wonderful and we don't have to have any new revelations that go back and correct you know, xenophobia or, just, you know, or some sort of blatant racism. We don't have to have that It's already here for us in the scriptures. But when Jesus says that, the synagogue, the people in the synagogue, their tenor changes dramatically. Let's read verse 28 through 30. It says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So things have changed. You know, at first they hear Jesus' words, they hear the first half of the message, and they're like, but we like this. Then they hear the second half of the message. And says, I mean, you've got this mob mentality comes out this wrath, and they are ready to execute Jesus right then and there. And it says they, he, you know, and, and what we see with this is that Jesus has such power, they can only do to him what he allows them to do to him. So he allows them to take him as far as the cliff. But that's even too, I mean, it even really just proves his point and fulfills the prophecy that Jesus had against him in the first place, that they would be against him. Because right as he says that, immediately they reject him and try to kill him. So he lets them go that far to he's at the edge of the cliff, and then he doesn't let them do any more. He just, you imagine like everything just stopping. Everybody pretty much just frozen. And there's, you know, a path just opens up as Jesus walks right through the middle of them and right out of the town. That's power. That's power. 
John chapter 10, verses 16 through 18, it says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring in, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So again, goes back to the whole, you know, Jewish people, Gentile people, that there's going to be, that there's not going to be that division anymore, but there's going to be one flock. And there's going to be one shepherd. And we ultimately have that in the church. One people of God, one shepherd, one great high priest. And he's the high priest and he's the lamb. But verse 17, it says, Therefore my father loves me because I've laid down my life that I may take it again. Notice this, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. So basically, Jesus didn't allow them to throw him off that cliff because it wasn't his time yet to be the Lamb of God that would lay down his life for the sheep. He still had other things to do. He still had more places, as we'll see as we continue, more places to preach and to heal and to do his thing. And then he had his disciples to continue to train so they would be able to continue after he left after his resurrection and ascension back. And so he still had, his mission wasn't done yet, but we need to remember that even at the cross, the Roman soldiers did not have the power to take his life. The religious leaders did not have the power to keep him on the cross. That Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. He had the power to lay it down, and he had the power to take it back again. And he did so for us, for our benefit. But in his power, as we make much of Jesus this morning, in his power, remember, as we see here, this crowd of people could do nothing to him that he did not allow them to do to him. As he walked right through the middle of that mob that wanted him dead. And he just walks right through as if it's nothing. He didn't have to fight his way through the mob. He didn't have to call down angels from heaven to strike the mob. He didn't have to do any of that. He just walked right on through them. So now continuing his prophecy, he goes straight from there, the fulfillment of it. He goes straight from there to Capernaum, verse 31. It says, then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with you? Jesus of Nazareth, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then all were amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. So a couple of things to notice here, as we've seen already in chapter 4, just the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus when he speaks the word in the, in the temple, when he walks through the crowd when he cast out this demon. 
we see the authority and power that Jesus has. And you hear here the, um, the demon kind of giving testimony to who Jesus really is, but Jesus doesn't need or desire the testimony of demons. And so he says to be quiet. And we'll see that again as we can finish up the chapter, verse 38. It says, Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, it was in, now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So just a couple of, of more notes here. One, we've, we get introduced to, you know, in Luke's gospel, this is our first introduction to, you know, to Peter. And, and they're at Peter's you know, mother-in-law's house, uh, or, they, or sorry, Peter's house, and the mother-in-law is there, and she's sick. And so Jesus heals her. It says immediately she arose and, and served them. And I think that's just really neat. When Jesus you know, healed her, there wasn't like, oh, and now she needs to rest and recover for a long time. No, I mean, she was healed and ready to get right back to her normal activities. And so she immediately turns around and serves them. And I think there's a lesson there, you know, spiritual lives. And when, you know, God saves someone when that person, uh, by God's grace, comes to faith in Christ and God heals them and changes their, their life, immediately that person then is able to begin serving others. It's not like they need a long period of time before they can start loving and serving other people. They can do that even that very hour. And that's awesome. Because God's, um, what God does in a person's life, is a, it's a radical change. And you notice that because of this, the word is getting out that other people are coming. Why? Because they are hearing of what God has done in these people's lives. And so, again, as we apply that, if God's, touched your life and changed your life by the power of Jesus, then other people should be hearing about that and therefore wanting to come to Jesus because they've seen the differences or even the testimony. Sometimes it's not even your life. It's you telling the stories of what God has done in other people's lives. Hey, let me tell you about my friend who's God's, you know, who, who God changed his life. And if people are exposed to that, we see here, them coming to Jesus for healing. Last thoughts on 42 through 44, as we're beginning to wrap things up. Notice that Jesus took time, and we see this many times in the Gospels. He took time in a deserted place. He took time by himself, and he took time to pray and to be connected to his Father. Now, if Jesus, being fully God and fully man, you know, needed that time and needed to do that, how much more do we need that? Yeah, and we, and we go back to that, 
you know, that daily walk with God that's so important. So if we want to have impact on other people, you know, you have to, if you're going to be poured out for other people, you have to be full. And so many times we're, we're being poured out for people, but we're being poured out on old reserves. Old reserves of, of times in the past where we were really close to God or, you know, you're, you're pulling, you know, it's Thursday and your, your reserves are still being pulled from Sunday's message or Sunday's worship time. Why? It shouldn't have to be that way and it shouldn't need to be that way because there should be a daily refreshment in the word of God and time with God and prayer. And so if we're going to have something to pour out in people's lives each day, then it's helpful if we begin you know, our days with some time in the Word and some time with Jesus and time meditating and, re- and reflecting because we want to have something to give people, right? We want to have something to share. And I hope that what you have to share is more than, well, I heard a decent message the other week and you know, I, hope, I hope you have more than that because of the time you've invested in the Word of God on your own. Notice a couple of other things. They tried to keep him from, from leaving them, and you can understand that. They had Jesus, and they didn't want to not have Jesus in their immediate presence. Man, I, I kind of desire oh, that we would have that same deal. I mean, fortunately, through the Spirit, we're not in a situation where, you know, if we have, we're withholding from someone else, like they were here. But just that, you know, we have Jesus and we want Jesus, so we want his closest, his nearness. We've made much of him, and so when there's opportunity to come together as a family, there's opportunity to have it in your own quiet time, that that is something that's desired. It's, it's not a chore. You know, it's like, oh, man. I mean, sometimes there is a place for that. that that's... The accountability and the responsibility of community and those things, they come into play when we're not, quote-unquote, feeling it right now. But hopefully that's not needed that many times throughout the year to where I'm here because of responsibility and because of my commitment and because it's not about me. Hopefully the majority of the time is, well, it's about Jesus, and so therefore I'm looking forward to having my quiet time tomorrow morning. Nobody's having to pull, drag me to it because I want it, because I want Jesus' presence. No one's having to drag me there on Sunday morning to worship together because I don't want to miss that. And so, you know, I arrange other things in my life to where that time is special for my family with God. You know, and that's not... And, and when I, the fear on that, because you go so far with that, then you get into legalism, and if you know, people do anything else, then it's like viewed as a sin or something like that. And that's not what we're talking about at all. So eliminate that from your thought process. Eliminate the legalistic side of it. What I'm talking about is our freedom to worship and to enjoy God and to enjoy God's presence, our freedom to spend time with Jesus and to enjoy him for who he is. And if we're having to get dragged to that, or it's almost that legalism has to be used in order to get us there, that's messed up. 
you know, that's a heart issue that's got to change. And the way that that changes is how. Lord, I'm desperate, change my heart because right now my heart is jacked. That's what changes that. And so hopefully we can be there. But then notice that Jesus had this responsibility. He couldn't just keep it localized and isolated. He needed to take that message, you know, out. And the majority of his message and his ministry, again, is going to be, you know, to the nation of Israel. That's where a lot of it is is focused, but it's certainly not designed to stay there, even as Luke chapter 4 proves and the words of Jesus prove that this message is to keep on going out, to keep on going out. And so wherever you are and wherever God has you at any particular time, understand the purpose is for the message of Jesus to keep on going out. It's going to be in different places and different times and different ways and different seasons of your life. But that's a question that we all need to be asking ourselves. Right now, our context, Athens and surrounding area, is the word of God going out here because there are many people in our community that don't have it yet and need to hear the gospel clearly and need to be confronted. And you know what? They may be like many that we read about in the Gospels that fall at their feet at Jesus and worship him and accept him for who he is. And there may be others who would be like one in this mob who are ready to kill both Jesus and you. Maybe not physically, but with their attitude and their words and you know, they become very angry. Are we okay with that? But as we saw in Oregon, and we don't know, I don't know the guy's mental condition, I don't know all of the motivations that were there, but I do know that he said to people, what religion are you? And if they said they were a Christian, they got shot in the head, and if they were silent or said something else, they got shot in the leg. So sometimes there is an ultimate cost. And that's a good question, again, to ask ourselves because that's an indicator of one's heart. How much am I willing to sacrifice for Jesus? At what point is too much too much? But, you know, I, I want to make a... a con- I want to say something because I don't want to take anything away or make light of anyone who pays in that ultimate way of their physical life. But I think sometimes maybe better, maybe easier to do that in that one moment in time when everything is on the line to make the right decision and to say, yes, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus regardless of the cost and to take it. I would contend that maybe sometimes that's easier than a lifetime of consistent daily commitment. following hard after God and making those daily sacrifices that come along with being a follower of Jesus. I'm going to contend that that might be tougher. 
Both are heroic. And both should be ordinary. We can hold those in tension you know, together at the same time. It should be ordinary for followers of Jesus to be willing to die for him. It should be ordinary for followers of Jesus to live a whole, their entire lives 100% committed, dedicated, where Jesus is first. Those, both of those should be ordinary. And yet they're extraordinary. And the biggest point that we get from it, we can't do it in our own power. We've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've got to walk with God, and we've got to be in communion with him all the time. Otherwise, it's just frustrating and futile. Trying to do what we're supposed to do without the right inputs and resources. I mean, that's just a recipe for a life of frustration. And so we get that consistency in our inputs will result in consistency in our outputs. It's that way in, like, everything that we do. Physically, academically, work. Following Jesus, it's just amplified because the stakes are greater. And it affects all those other areas as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray again we would make much of you and much of your Son this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, we come to you. um, We confess our, our weaknesses, the weakness of our flesh, our inability on our own. to make changes, to make a difference. That we're 100% dependent on you, God. That you are the source of life. And Jesus, you came to give us life and to give us abundant life that would be free from sin and free from being slaves. So help us to live as free people who love worshiping the one who made us free. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we give you thanks, dear Jesus. We remember you. Thank you that you were willing to lay down your life for us. Most of us being from a different fold, but now one with all of your people. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name.